my name is Becky Smith. I'm an occupational therapy student at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Deanna Longo. I'm an occupational therapy student at Stony Brook University, Southampton on Long Island. This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Have you seen the 2021 My OT Journey Planner? This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. This planner is a must for OT students and practitioners. Check it out at myotjourney.com. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Becky Smith, and I'm here with Deanna Longo. We are excited to be talking to you, with you again for our second episode of My OT Journey. Hi, everyone. I'm Deanna. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking with Caitlin Jones, and Caitlin is an occupational therapist and the director of clinical and community outreach for Warfighter Engaged, Inc. Now, Warfighter Engaged, Inc. is a nonprofit volunteer charitable organization that aims to improve the lives of veterans through adaptive gaming and technology. So first, we're going to start off uh, with general OT questions for Caitlin and also the introduction and design of the adaptive gaming controller. So first, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your current job? Of course, and thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm Caitlin Jones. I am an occupational therapist, and in addition to working with um, my dad and I as a nonprofit, Warfighter Engaged, I'm also currently a program manager working with the Xbox gaming accessibility team at Microsoft. Uh, I have a few different functions in this role, uh, first of which is to kind of provide subject matter expertise on disability and kind of how a disability or condition can affect a person's ability to interact with or use a product or play a game uh, and things like that. So um, in my case, our team at Microsoft slash Xbox, uh, we often work with game studios who are <clears throat> creating the latest and greatest video games um, as well as any gaming related apps and websites and we kind of consult with them on how to design their game or their app to be as accessible as possible for people with disabilities, at least, you know, that's the goal. And this could kind of be anything from, you know, uh, make sure your game doesn't require that a person have to hold a button down for an extended period of time to perform a necessary action in the game. Uh, like, kind of going into the weeds here off the bat, but, um, I got a lot of questions around what an occupational therapist uh, can offer at a company like um, Xbox and Microsoft, so I'll just dive right into it. Uh, but, you know, for example, like a lot of racing games, you're obviously holding down the trigger, the pedal yes. for your gas. Um, yeah. And for players that use, like, sip and puff controls, um, constantly puffing or sipping into something to emulate holding down that trigger gas pedal to accelerate is really difficult over an extended period of time. Uh, same just with somebody that has upper extremity weakness or fatigue, they might have difficulty with this and uh, communicating these types of scenarios and players with the design and development teams and communicating to them that, you know, like these players will be excluded from your game if they're blocked by certain types of design barriers like these, um, and, you know, same with text size and contrast and screen reader capabilities, so all these different types of things. Um, and in my my role, I also create a lot of documentation and training materials that are really written from that like holistic OT perspective where it touches on both the player with the disability and what types of disabilities and functions are more susceptible to potentially having issues with poor design of a game or an app um, and helping the reader understand how these bad inaccessible uh, design really negatively impacts these players with disabilities and what are the best approaches to fix this in your game or product to just enable more of our gamers with disabilities to be able to enjoy it. Wow. Uh, uh, do those trainings go right to the designers or is it kind of a whole top-down approach where the whole company would hear about it? Um, so they're definitely 
certain pieces of documentation are written to be more targeted towards uh, specific audiences. So like the type of guidance that we might write up or create for game developers will be pretty different than from somebody else um, working on the team. Uh, so it, a lot of our resources are definitely company-wide for anybody to read if they're more like introductory to accessibility. But just given you know like how busy everybody is uh, doing their day job on top of ensuring that these accessibility features are added in, they tend to be more targeted for specific audiences, so they really like, get the most use out of that. And I think that's kind of the beauty of being an OT too is understanding who your patient is, or this is a bad analogy, but in this case, like who you're talking to, which is maybe a designer versus um, like um, an engineer or something like that and being able to be really adaptable and cater your language and how you talk and frame things to the different types of interdisciplinary people that you're talking to when you're you know, either meeting with them or writing up this documentation for them. That's really interesting because I was also thinking while you were describing that, I'm sure the people that you collaborate with to um, to make the gaming controllers probably wouldn't even think of those aspects, especially with uh, working with people with disabilities. They might be only designing it for a typically functioning human. So I think bringing in an OT perspective is really important because it brings awareness to certain disabilities that wouldn't have been thought of prior. Yeah, exactly. And I know you mentioned you said you um, were working with your dad. So mm -hmm. for our next question, I don't know if your dad had any involvement or maybe inspiration, but how did you find occupational therapy? I don't know if maybe he introduced it to you or anything. Yeah, no, that is that is pretty much exactly what happened. My dad, he's a mechanical engineer by trade, and um, he started working with veterans when I was in high school out of Walter Reed Military Medical Center in Maryland, which, you know, is a huge, huge medical center for veterans, uh, especially during, like, the peak of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. There were just a ton of veterans coming back with limb loss and various types of injuries, and they loved gaming. Like, it was something that they did before they were deployed, during deployment. It was super, super important for them because it kind of helped them escape or give them some kind of enjoyable outlet from their daily stressful lives of being in a combat environment or being away from their families. Um, and they would come back and they might be missing an arm or both arms or all four limbs. And basically my, my dad started working with some of these veterans and creating these adaptive gaming rigs for them way before the Xbox adaptive controller came out. Um, and, you know, he just used to always talk about how great it was going to the hospital and working with the veterans there. And I, when I was a junior in high school, I made him take me to the hospital to kind of see what, what it was all about, that he would, you know, drive six hours from New Jersey to Maryland, like, wow. once in a day, every couple of weeks that he was spending that much time. So I was like, I, you know, I need to see what it's all about. So he took me to the hospital, and I actually got to meet I didn't even know what occupational therapy was as a junior in high school, unfortunately. Um, but I met the OTs there that were working with the veterans that were kind of like partnering with my dad and giving him patients and leading him on to patients that they knew wanted to get gaming rigs. And uh, I saw my first experience with an OT was they were teaching uh, one of the veterans who just lost both arms and ha just gotten two new prosthetic arms to like cut and slice with a knife and kind of prepare a meal and feed himself. And in that moment, I was like, that's, that's what I want to do. So, uh, you know, perfect, perfect timing. I was around when I was applying to colleges. So I applied to the University of Scranton. They had a five-year uh, combined bachelor's, master's OT program. And that's kind of how things went on from there. So very serendipitous. But I, I like to think everything happens for a reason. So That's awesome. Because I was talking with Becky. Um, about how not a lot of people know what occupational therapy is, especially mm -hmm. at a young age. Like, I didn't even really know what it was. It was actually introduced to me by my mom, um, but I didn't know what it was in high school either. So I think knowing what it is at a, a young age is good because then you can apply for those accelerated programs like you did, where they have, like, five years instead of going to a four-year program and then following up with, like, three years of grad school. Um, totally. Also. 
Yeah, I know a lot of people still don't know what OT is or they think that we, you know, like help people get jobs and stuff like that. Like I'm always having to explain, especially at a company like Microsoft where it's primarily tech workers, like what an OT is. <laughs> so, but uh, I think we're getting there. I think we'll we'll keep spreading our, our love and our message of what we do and soon enough everybody will know. <laughs> so. Yeah, I agree with Deanna. I think it's just so great that you found it early. Uh, you know, as Deanna knows, I found it way late. <laughs> so I actually had like a whole other degree before OTs just appeared in my life. So uh, I just think that's so amazing that you were so young and you saw that uh, man cutting food again and feeding himself again. You were like, this is it. Like, what an aha moment. That's so beautiful. Yeah. I know. It's like you can't even, well, you can make this stuff up. It was, like I said, very serendipitous. So, yeah, I, I consider myself super fortunate for that. And it also must be really nice to get to work with your dad for every sure. day watching him. Yeah, it was really great. So getting back to the Xbox Adaptive Controller, Caitlin has developed a wide variety of adaptive controllers for video gamers with disabilities, as she previously just spoke about. So as a member of Warfighter Engaged, Inc., um, she was involved in the original development of the Xbox Adaptive Controller in partnership with Microsoft. So, Caitlin, can you set the scene for us and describe your role in developing assistive technology? And then to get us started, where did the initial idea come from to design it and adaptive gaming controllers stem from? I know you touched upon this a little bit already, but maybe any other additional comments? Yeah, so I think, you know, again, before the Xbox adaptive controller was really a thing at all, uh, my dad was was doing a lot of creation for these rigs, and as I was going through my OT schooling and experiences with OT, um, it it led us partnership really well because, like I said, he's a mechanical engineer, but being an OT, like we might get an email remotely because we work with individuals from all across the country, and we primarily work with veterans. But you know, if we get an email from a parent with a kid who has uh, you know, XYZ disability and they're looking for help or for some ideas for a setup. Like we, you know, we obviously try to help as many people as we can. So to get an email from a, a parent, which happens really often and say like, you know, my son has XYZ, these are his types of movements, uh, like can you help us? And kind of me to be the one to interact with that parent or that individual veteran, whatever, and kind of synthesize what these disabilities mean and then work directly with my dad. Uh, so he's kind of, you know, like the person who's designing and 3D printing and doing the electronics of it. And then I could kind of be that person to help think through, like, from an, ex uh, an uh, activity analysis perspective. Sorry, it's early here. Uh, from an activity analysis perspective, like, what is the best way that we could design this for this individual so they will be able to use it easily and meaningfully? And kind of bringing those two different approaches together to create one specific product. And, um, but I won't take any credit away from my dad. Like, he's, he's got all the definitely limb loss. Um, spinal cord injury, some really common um, disabilities that we were seeing with the veteran population down like way before I even started going to OT school. He's just amazing. Uh, but what happened with our involvement with Xbox is basically, you know, he was making a lot of these controllers and one day somebody from Xbox saw our Twitter account for our nonprofit and they contacted us and they were just kind of like, you know, how could we as Xbox do what you are doing to scale? Because you're just one small nonprofit and there are so many gamers with disabilities that need these types of adaptive controls. So um, fortunately, Microsoft slash Xbox, uh, they're really receptive to the community and they really believe in the phrase, they call it nothing about us without us. So as a tech company, if we're going to create products for people with disabilities. We don't just want to create them for them, but we want to create them with the disability community. So they brought us, um, specifically my dad, up to headquarters and just began frequently meeting, learning from us, um, talking with a lot of the veterans that we've made adaptive gaming controllers and rigs for. And uh, initially they had us partner with them on this event called the Hackathon which is basically, wow. you know, at, at Microsoft, everybody can take one week 
off from their day job to work on a passion project of their choice. And this is where a lot of cool accessibility features and things come out is because people just have the freedom to create what's needed or what they want to work on as opposed to, you know, whatever their day job might be. So the Xbox Adaptive Controller wow. was actually born out of a hackathon project that our, our team, Warfighter Engage, got to consult on and be a part of that hackathon and things kind of moved from there. That is that so is cool. cool. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Wow. I, I also love how Microsoft reached out to you about the idea when they saw it on your website. Um, that's really cool because then you were able to collaborate with them. And I also think it's really cool how when you were describing um, when different people were emailing you with certain disabilities because that must have been great for them to reach out to someone to get their child more engaged in an activity that they love. So it was great that you were on board. And engage with their peers, but it's also amazing that Xbox is going by the, the slogan, um, I guess you could call it the, the, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, nothing about us without us has actually been around since um, the 80s, and it was actually used uh, by the disability rights community as they were trying to get the ADA passed. So mm -hmm. that's a very old and like treasured sentiment in the disability rights community. So I think that that's just so beautiful that A, they knew what that was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's amazing. And B, they follow it. That's amazing. Yeah, for sure. I will say it's been like such a pleasure working with them in an official capacity um, following the hackathon at this point in time, just because they are just really so committed to accessibility. I think e even just the fact that they're willing to hire somebody with an OT background to be on their teams uh, is just, it just shows their commitment to knowing that, hey, they're experts in this space, whether it's an OT or the actual disability community members, and we want to be sure that they're consulting. Like, we could do the work and the manpower and create the products and things like that, but we want to do it with the guidance from the people who are really embedded within the user community of whatever the product is. So, yeah. And that also will definitely help spread awareness of OT as well, because you can explain it to all of the workers at Microsoft. I try great. to. <laughs> <laughs> I try to do a great job. Uh, you mentioned the involvement of specific people from disability community, and I was just wondering, um, when you guys were designing this, like during Hackathon, were there any specific disabilities that you had in mind when you were designing the different customizations for the adaptive controller? or I'm just kind of thinking, is it mostly were you thinking it was an upper extremity issue, like an, uh, an ability to use your arms like somebody typically may? Perspective, people with physical types of disabilities can now pick and choose uh, the buttons and joysticks and stuff that will work for them. That's really, really interesting. And I'm guessing that came from just your long background with your dad and um, his history of working with amputees. Yeah, I think for sure. And I know um, they they do a lot of beta testing and user research, definitely in this process for sure. But a lot of the participants and beta testers were former Warfighter engaged um, controller recipients. So, and that was a lot of folks with limb loss that were actually testing the product during its development and giving feedback to continue to kind of shape that. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I know that you, you answered this a little bit, but I know your role has actually, um, or I'm getting to the fact that I'm pretty sure your role has expanded at Microsoft since this first uh, designing of that adaptive controller during the hackathon. So I know you mentioned they reached out to you, but can you describe how you becoming a full partner kind of happened at, at a huge organization like Microsoft? Yeah, totally. Great question. Um, so, like you mentioned, the, the consulting through Warfighter Engage on the hackathon was just kind of like a, you know, a, a partnership and not anything super official. But through working with the teams at Microsoft, um, and a lot of them hadn't known what occupational therapy or what <laughs> OTs do or are until they started working with the, the Warfighter team and some of the other partner groups that um, 
consulted on the design of the Xbox Adaptive Controller, like Erin from Craig Hospital, she's an OT. Uh, she had a ton of influence in the actual design form factor of it, uh, including like ergonomically making sure the controller was angled a certain way and that the wow. edges were rounded as opposed to sharp because, you know, she was bringing that perspective of a lot of these patients, especially, or, you know, users of the controller that might have had a spinal cord injury don't have great feeling in their hands and you don't want them resting on a really sharp edge of a device to use it oh. because it's dangerous. So yeah, just again like bringing those OT perspectives in. Um, but the way that I kind of got in was again almost as serendipitous as finding OT in the first place. But through, through the uh, adaptive controller hackathons, we brought light to what OTs are to the folks at Microsoft and also like how the OT perspective is going to be really important in shaping inclusive design and accessible design of products. So um, basically from there, a big part of what I did once I realized that that you know might be a, a possible route to get into was I focused the rest of my graduate research on gaming and adaptive oh, wow. controllers. And um, I did, you know, my honors capstone and my final graduate project capstone on looking at the power of adaptive controllers to kind of heal both mental health and physical health-wise gamers with disabilities. And obviously that was um, highly sought after by the Microsoft community of folks is bringing somebody on board who not only has the OT perspective, but also is really ingrained in the gaming community and understands gamers with disabilities. And um, yeah, they, my first role at Microsoft, they invited me to be a contractor full-time on the Surface user research accessibility team. And that was really oh, wow. awesome. Because like in that role, you know, I got to consult and learn and help hopefully shape all types of hardware products. So whether it was laptops or headphone form factors and all these different kinds of stuff, like everyday kind of products that people with disabilities could be using outside of just gaming peripherals and controllers. So that was super, super great. And then, um, yeah, recently this past July, I went over to a new team, which is the Xbox gaming accessibility team. So in this role, it's pretty much no hardware focus, uh, aside from the adaptive controller at times, but for the most part, this role is more about the software of games and websites and apps. So, um, which has also been really great and interesting too, because, um, you know, like software is a lot more moldable and malleable. So if you have suggestions for a hardware product, it's like, you yeah. know, cool, that's a great suggestion, but it's too late. Like the form factor is already <laughs> the way it is. But in software, if you have suggestions or, you know, you have much more opportunities to work with the team so they can go back and change it and iterate on software before something is launched, which is super cool. That's such an interesting point, too, because I know that a lot of games now have updates, right, after you get them initially. Like, if, let's say you buy it on, not to mention another uh, major software company, but like a PS4 game, if you buy one, it's going to eventually get an update. So do you ever have influence on those updates? Yeah, definitely. Um, wow. we, we get consulted on stuff like that all the time, uh, especially for older games that are already released. But um, right now, we've been really fortunate that accessibility has been so big and people are really passionate about ensuring their games are accessible, that for new games that are still being released and developed, like those developers are really coming to our team and the various accessibility teams at Microsoft to learn how can we do this right from the initial launch and then just make it better from there? That's really amazing. I'm so glad that you uh, and I believe your colleague at Craig that you had said uh, were able to bring this to Microsoft's attention. Uh, and I know you said this a little harder to change hardware, but we do have a few more questions about the Microsoft hardware itself. Um, yeah. I know you said that this stemmed, the whole idea of the adaptive controller stemmed from the hackathon, and you said that's about a week long. So how long was the actual process of designing this controller from start to finish? And I do mean the adaptive Xbox controller that you referenced earlier with the two large buttons at the top and the many inputs uh, along the sides. And I was just wondering, um, I think you alluded to this, so I'm guessing you probably did, that you actually worked with the design team 
Um, I'm kind of wondering what testing looks like and if people who have disabilities were involved in the testing. Yeah, so Erin was actually the OC who was more super, super heavily involved in working with the designers themselves. Um, so that's, that's where Erin, uh, as an OT, was really able to bring the OT perspective. I will not take credit for that. I was, I was more on the peripheral during the, the initial Xbox Adaptive Controller. I was actually still in college. Uh, so, you know, I flew out a few times to Microsoft campus, but um, wow. she was actually, like, using it with her patients and giving those really specific design inputs. So she was the OT that worked with the design team. And yeah, as you mentioned, the hackathon is about a week. And But the overall process for the adaptive controller or most hardware products is a couple of years. So uh, from the initial concept phase to, uh, you know, creating initial prototypes, getting feedback from the community, that's kind of the biggest part of the cyclical process is having some kind of form factor, getting feedback, iterating on it, putting it back out, getting that feedback and iterating on it again. Um, so that's, that's definitely a huge part of it. And then obviously it's a business, so getting support uh, for funding the product and things like that. So overall, the, the team that was uh, directly the direct Microsoft team that created the controller to its entirety, uh, they probably worked for about two and a half or so, three years from initial concept phase to actually launching the product. Wow. And so then you graduated in that time period too, right? I did, so yeah. That's when I graduated and that's when um, they, you know, I'd start, I was starting to work a little bit and they knew that, um, they wanted to have some sort of OT perspective and I was in a perfect place to just pick up and move because I wasn't <laughs> established anywhere either. Uh, so yeah, I, I just moved out. I was living in Texas at the time and I moved out to Washington from wow. there. Yeah, it was, it was very serendipitous again, but yeah, not, not trying to question it. <laughs> no, I have a question at all. Yeah, yeah. no, that's such a cool opportunity, definitely not one you'd want to pass up on. And it also has me thinking, I know you were talking about um, with finding this career, because you also knew it from your dad being an engineer and then meeting an OT. Um, I was wondering, because when I heard about everything you were doing, I was like, this is so cool. And I feel like we don't learn about this in OT school. Like, I feel like they're very kind of like, oh, you can work with like pediatrics, geriatrics, like everything's very like general. So mm -hmm. it just came into my head. I feel like this is such a unique way for an OT to work. Do you feel like more OTs will be working in these innovative ways in the future? And for maybe someone who wouldn't really know how to get started in it, how do you, what's your advice, I guess, to get into such a unique field? I really hope so. Um, I'm definitely a firm believer that OTs have so much more to offer, not even just in the tech space, but also like we do a lot of consults on universal design, but like building structure and ensuring that, you know, things like elevators and curb cuts and whatever, those are all implemented from the get-go. I know with ADA, a lot of them are required by law, but, you know, ADA compliant does not always mean acceptable. <laughs> So, for example, like, um, I have a friend who is a wheelchair user, and the building they work in is ADA compliant in that it has an elevator, but he does not have use of his arms or fingers, so he can't press any of the buttons once he gets in the elevator. So it's like, yeah, we're meeting ADA compliance, but is that actually accessible for the, all of the people using it? And the answer is no. So. Mm -hmm. You know, point being, I would love for OTs to be able to, you know, consult more and get out into the world and have our knowledge and our expertise leveraged throughout all areas of creating things in general uh, to make sure that accessibility is really at the forefront of that. Um, and yeah, I, I know you asked a, another question, but I, it escaped from my uh, my thought train. <laughs> no, no, that was great. I was just wondering um, for anyone who wants to get involved in something maybe like adaptive gaming or anything that might not be as like a typical OT setting, what advice would you give? Yeah, for sure. I think a big part of it is experience 
And, you know, in my case, I didn't have a lot of experience working as an OT in the field. I had, you know, months of my um, fieldwork experiences and things like that, but what kind of set me apart from another just OT student who was kind of a new grad and only worked a couple of months or so as an actual OT in the world was my experiences with Warfighter Engaged and having years of working with the disability and gaming community like on top of my OT schooling. Um, and then, so yeah, I would say if there's, there's like a specific field you're really interested in getting into like gaming, uh, do your, do your extra homework to make sure that you are up to date on kind of those additional tech aspects of things. So like sign up to volunteer with an organization like Warfighter Engaged if you can and get those experiences. And then on top of that, if there's any additional schoolwork that you think might be necessary to the field that you're interested in. Uh, so like for me, I hate coding, I'm not, I'm not a coding type person, but I know that in order to give prescriptive guidance about how to make a software type thing more accessible, I should have some kind of basic level understanding of coding and the platform that developers are using to be able to talk to them about how they might need to change it to make it more accessible for a player. So I, you know, did some background uh, stuff on coding or on different types of accessibility programs and trainings and things like that. So I definitely think that depending on where your interests lie, you can take some additional courses or uh, training programs and things like that to kind of buff up on, um, you know, those higher level things that are the language of the people that you're going to be working with. This way you come in knowing both about what they're, where they're coming from, but also about the OT perspectives that you want to give them. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think definitely continuing education is something that's very important just to always stay up to date on whatever field you're passionate about because then you know knowledge about it um, continually. And I know you addressed this a little bit prior, um, but especially because we were saying how occupational therapists bring perspectives that um, people who are designing the gamers might not be aware of. Did you find any specific limitations when developing the Xbox Adaptive Gaming Control that you might have brought up to the team to be aware of as they were designing? Um, again, I, I won't take any credit for the actual development of the controller, but I know some of the things that heavily influenced that, that team as they were designing it were things like cost. Um, so, you know, thinking about the functionality of the device versus the cost. And as we know as OTs and OT students and um, everything like that, that a lot of times those in the disability community tend to be from lower income areas. Um, so to be spending $500 or even $200 or $300 on a controller, uh, like a specialized controller for them is not always um, a great option. So I think some of the limitations were in that there are always things that could be added to the, the controller or a product that might make it even better or more accessible for certain types of people, but you have to weigh that with the cost and are you, by adding these additional functionalities that drive up the cost hundreds of dollars, are you in effect creating another barrier outside of physical access that people are already experiencing with controllers and that now they can't even afford your product at all. Um, so I think, yeah, cost is always interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, definitely that's a good point because I was thinking when we were discussing how about designing it to adapt to specific disabilities, but a whole other element is cost because as you were saying, if you can't make a product that's an appropriate cost for the population that you're making it for, then it's not really going to be super feasible, which I think is something really interesting to think about. Yeah. yeah it wouldn't be inclusive either, you know. Exactly. If you're, it's in a whole other way of excluding people is by that financial piece. So I think it's so beautiful that you thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the team, they really wanted to make sure it was accessible on all fronts. And again, like you guys mentioned, by excluding that cost barrier, like it's just as important as physical accessibility a lot of times. Now, speaking of a little bit higher cost and maybe more specific things, I'm sure you um, know about this, but there are 
some adaptive controllers out there that are for specific games only. And one of the ones that I'm talking about is actually was created by uh, or in conjunction with uh, a player called Hacks. And so he was really known in the Smash Brothers uh, Melee community. And so basically in that community, the GameCube controller, you use a lot of repetitive thumb motions to control the game. And the games played at incredibly high speed. So you could have these repetitive, very jerky thumb motions going on um, constantly. And if you're a pro gamer, that's up to like, what, eight hours a day at least? So uh, what happened to this gentleman is unfortunately he developed arthritis in his thumb and then had to have several corrective surgeries and was unable to use the GameCube, the GameCube controller. So he created this smash box it's Smashbox controller. It's basically like a it's a rectangle box with a bunch of buttons that simulate uh, the movements of the GameCube controller. And I'm just wondering what your perspective as someone who made something that's kind of more universally designed. What do you think about these really specialized controllers? Yeah, I I love the notion of you know any kind of customizable controller that facilitates a player being able to hopefully. Like set something up that meets their needs. Um, and even if that means that a particular player really, really likes playing a specific game and they now have an option for a controller that's optimized for that game, as long as they're okay with that, um, then that's, that's awesome. And I think, you know, it's also always really interesting to see how the design for one specific group could really benefit others. Um, again, Microsoft has this notion of solve for one extent to many, and we see that with a lot of gaming products, uh, especially products that are used for like pro gamers. So one example, in addition to the, the Smash box that I'm sure even though it, it was built with the intention of being used for Smash Bros, I'm sure a ton of other people with disabilities were able to purchase that and leverage it for other games that they wanted to and customize the buttons to meet their needs. Um, and like we see the same thing with, you know, like um, mice, uh, PC gamers, they really like really light mice because the lighter it is, the easier it is to obviously push around and it doesn't fatigue their wrist as much and they're able to play the game faster and kill people faster, you know, whatever, whatever the <laughs> mechanics of the game are. And um, we've seen the members of the disability community buying these pro gamer ultra light mice because they're not pro gamers and they don't need to be able to move their mouse super fast in the way that a pro gamer would, but because of their disability, perhaps they have upper extremity weakness or um, range of motion or anything like that. So to have this super light mouse helps them from an accessibility perspective. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's always really, really interesting and awesome to see just any kind of adaptive, customizable, or different form factor options that are out in the community because I can guarantee regardless of what, what intent it was built for, somebody is using it in a totally different way and it's working for them and they're totally kicking butt doing it, so. That's awesome. Yeah, I thought it was just really neat that um, A, he was able to get it approved for tournaments um, and it is still letting him be, like they're still letting him use this box for certain tournaments and he ended up, I think he was number six in the country. Uh, by the end of it, so it was kind of awesome that he came back and after these many injuries and was able to play again and be competitive. So I think you're right too because um, just the fact that it says pro gamer on it or you know anything like that, it kind of makes it seem like, I don't know, really fun. Whereas sometimes when a product is marked as um, adaptive, I feel like sometimes people might get or feel kind of weird using it. Yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely uh, can be kind of that societal, cultural uh, barrier in some ways. I never actually really thought about that, that, you know, is a gamer with a disability or without a disability but might need something adaptive more willing to purchase something that's just advertised as pro or customizable as opposed to reaching for something that's labeled as accessible or adaptable. I think that's super interesting. 
I just mentioned that because it actually came up um, in my lab this week at OT school. Deanna and I are still in OT school, and my professor did mention that a lot of times um, she really enjoys, like, for instance, how Under Armour just created a, a jacket that has magnetic zippers, but they didn't call it adaptive or universally designed or anything like that. It's just their new jacket that has a magnetic zipper closure and makes it easier to zip up, and also it was cheaper then. So whereas it, if it had been an adaptive sweater or an adaptive windbreaker, it might have been a little bit more expensive coming from that company. But it was just really interesting um, thought that I had while we were kind of creating this um, podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's definitely something that we as OTs could bring to, like, designing of products, too, is that a lot of times, like, to kind of to try to convince a company to invest in an accessibility or adaptable product might make them think that they are spending a lot of money on a small audience or a small like market uh, because obviously there are significantly less people with disabilities than without disabilities if you're looking at numbers. Um, so yeah, to be able to use our, our OT perspective and talk to the stakeholders and people that are making these decisions and say like, yeah, this jacket helps not only this person and this person, but all of these people too. Um, yeah. And you're just expanding it to a wider audience. Um, we The same thing with like in gaming, uh, subtitles and captions. Obviously they're intended for um, users who are deaf or hard of hearing, but I turn my subcaptions on for like Netflix and stuff all the time. I pretty much have them on everything that I own, and I'm I not. Do too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so like having those conversations of it's not just about the one person with the disability. It is very about them to make sure that they are enabled, but also like if you are a mom with a crying baby and you want your subtitles on because you can't hear the TV or whatever, like, you know, there are so many other use cases that just good design helps everybody. I think it's so cool that you can use your OT lens to show them it's, that it's not a shrinking market. You're not shrinking it. You're actually expanding your market to a whole new group that you hadn't thought of before. And it just happens to work for the people you're already serving. So I think it's so cool that those companies like Microsoft have someone like you to show them that lens. Yeah, I, I try my best to, but honestly, like, everybody there is so great and so, like, forward accessibility-minded and thinking that they have, they've had this lockdown for, for years now. Like, they're just great. That's so good to hear. That's amazing. And then also, I know you spoke about... Um, when you get emails sometimes from people just with specific questions about um, based upon like their disability, what gaming control to use, we are wondering if any feedback from gamers um, that have used the adaptive control or maybe sparked any ideas for future projects. I don't know yeah. if you could say anything, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think on the on the Microsoft side of things, um, I know there. Are, obviously always listening to the community and um, is there any unneed nets in terms of like peripherals and joysticks and buttons like the uh, if you haven't seen the Logitech adaptive gaming kit which is basically a set of switch buttons of uh, various sizes and forces and um, you should definitely check that out but that actually came out like over a year after the Xbox Adaptive Controller was launched, and that's because the company Logitech saw an unmet need in the gaming ecosystem, which was that typical Switch buttons are like 60 bucks for one button. And wow. they thought that was ridiculous because it is. Uh, so mm -hmm. they um, created a set of 10 buttons or so. Um, Actually, it might be more. I don't remember. Um, but it's 100 bucks for just a significant amount of buttons. Uh, and it's super cost-effective and helpful. So yeah, I think definitely learning from the community has created this atmosphere of trying to fill in those unmet gaps all the time. I love that, because then it's also great to hear that everyone's adapting to what the community needs, and even cost-wise, too, thinking about that. I think yeah. is also so important. So moving on to mental health and gaming, um, I know mental health has been 
very big recently in terms of COVID and just everything going on in the world. Um, but we are wondering specifically with gaming, how do you think the adaptive controller has affected the mental health of people with disabilities? I think it's been huge um, from a lot of different angles. I think even from the initial announcement or launch, people were really excited about the adaptive controller, uh, even if they didn't need it or like don't you know, don't have a reason to use it, but just seeing like, wow, there is a product that was made for people with disabilities. Like for the first time I am being heard by a huge major corporation and I feel like I matter. Like I feel like my voice is heard. I feel like my needs and my interests are being heard. And I think that was definitely super, super important in the community, both with like users, but also just supporters of the gaming and disability community. And then I think for the actual users who can now game, uh, it's probably been significantly positively impactful on their mental health. Um, and I, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but a lot of the veterans that we worked with, they would tell us all the time that, you know, they used to be some of the most athletic individuals, obviously. They were deployed, they were in the Navy and the Army and things like that. And they would come home and they might have lost all four of their limbs. So they're now going to have a much more difficult time doing a lot of the athletic things that they like or playing football with their son or anything like that. So having the ability to do an activity that they enjoy or maybe picking up for the first time that they're going to enjoy, like just changes everything for them. They have now have this social participation outlet that's way to communicate and connect with their friends and family. And I think especially during COVID, like a lot of members of the disability community may have, you know, some kind of immunocompromised immune systems and things like that. So in addition to just often having more difficult time with community mobility, uh, just unfortunately with the nature of our public transportation systems and things like that. So to have gaming as a way to still connect with your friends and talk with them and do a fun activity with them virtually through gaming, uh, I think is just totally super, super important in general and even more so during COVID where everybody is kind of isolated uh, overall to begin with. So again, like that self for one extent to many, but just gaming in general now during COVID, um, people without disabilities are having that ability to still connect with their friends and family through gaming online. I think that's so true. I mean, really, um, they, you know, the virtual and social, that virtual social environment was already there, right? And then the fact that COVID came along and made sure that we all had to stay inside, we still wanted to connect with our families. And I think you're right that it's just really, important right now to have some way of connecting and I think the virtual environment maybe is going to change a little bit because of that uh, maybe become a little bit more social mm -hmm. and because of everyone having to stay home during this pandemic have you seen um, an increase at all of people having to or wanting to go out and get adaptive controllers because they are you know maybe immunocompromised or have to stay home because like you said the limitations of public transportation or just COVID in general have you seen an uptick at all uh, I've definitely seen an uptick in the amount of orders and consults that Warfighter Engage gets about the adaptive controllers I'm not sure about the actual sales of the controllers themselves but I um, Going off information that I do definitely have, we've seen uh, a lot, a lot of information in that sense. In that, um, yeah, just since February, March, we've been getting a ton more emails and orders on our website. So we actually, our our Warfighter Engage website, we sell peripherals for the adaptive controller at a super low cost, so like joysticks and buttons and things like that. And pretty much the way that we operate, just as an aside, is any tiny profit margin that we do get off of selling these peripherals goes towards funding a free um, rig or controller for a veteran. But That's uh, awesome. yeah, um, yeah, my dad just again has like the biggest heart and he spends a ton of time just like ensuring that, you know, this, this community has its needs met. But yeah, to to answer your question, a ton more orders and consults in the past few months with COVID. I think people are really um, 
seeing that gaming a large potential for them to, to fill their time and bring them some enjoyment. And now they have a lot of extra time to try it if they thought that gaming might be too unapproachable or it would never happen for them in the past. Like, you know, now now's the perfect time. That's a great point, too, because some people might have been maybe not had time to make a rig before. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. And then, so getting a little bit back to um, COVID, there were a lot of feel, feelings like fear, worry, or stress, which were intensified just due to the uncertainty of the world. So then, like we were saying, um, like when you were saying there was a lot more emails in February and March about the gaming controller, um, just due to the increase in the amount of time spent at home because of all this happening, um, where do you see the future of gaming and adaptive controllers going just due to the increase in screen time? Do you think it'll maybe shift the direction that gaming will go after the pandemic? I definitely think so. And I think like a lot of folks underestimate where gaming is at or even was at like before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. um, just if you look at research and statistics alone, how many gamers there are in the world, um, how many gamers with disabilities there are, how much time people spend gaming day to day, like it's huge. Uh, it's a really important thing in a lot of people's lives. And it's not just limited to like, you know, um, teenagers or those in like the 18 to 30 age range. Like there are plenty of statistics on gamers that are upwards of 60 years old. And I think that what we also tend to forget about too is that gaming is not just like playing on an Xbox console or a Switch or a Wii. Um, you know, if you like to play Bejeweled or that's an old game now at this point, uh, Candy Crush or whatever on your iPad and your iPhone, like you're a gamer. You enjoy <laughs> the mechanics of challenging yourself and all of the the joy of like checking off a new level and beating something and getting that, you know, small sense of positive feedback when you do something like that. You enjoy that engaging nature of just doing something with your hands and your eyes. So I think that gaming is already huge. And I think that, you know, if you're an OT and you are afraid of technology or, you know, are afraid of embracing gaming into your practice or like, are not prepared to be able to help a client who just had a stroke be able to use their iPad again to play Candy yeah. Crush or be able to use an Xbox controller again, like, you are largely failing your clients because um, it's just we're, we're at a day and age where if you're not familiar with technology and you're not prepared to ensure that your patients can engage in technology use as a meaningful occupation, then, um, you know, I, I think that that's... They're, that's a little behind in the times if we're not making sure we're aware of that right now. I think you're just cutting yourself off of a huge opportunity. You know, I have um, several professors that have said that they use, and this is an old game too, that they use Fruit Ninja a lot on the iPad yeah. to improve, you know, just visual tracking and scanning yep. um, and limb coordination after stroke. So you really are kind of limiting yourself because in that game it's so good too because you have that intrinsic feedback which means feedback that you get from inside yourself because you either slice the fruit or you don't right mm -hmm. so and then you also know if you're doing well and completing what you're supposed to be doing because you have all these lights and sounds that happen that say good job so it's kind of awesome because you give them this tool to go home and practice everything they learned in OT with you as coach and then when they get home, you know, kind of Fruit Ninja or whatever game you might have them playing can take over and coach them a little bit too. So it's just even better, more practice, and it might even be something that they play against their grandchild or their sibling or, you know, whoever. So I think you're right. I think um, OTUs definitely should be looking at these different avenues as technology progresses. Yeah, no, you totally hit the nail exactly on the head there. Like, uh, it's a great way to, as a therapist-client relationship, it's a great way to build rapport. Like, hey, you know, COVID is different, but like, hey, we're in a rehab center and your grandson's visiting you. Like, let's pull him in. He'll play this game with you. You guys can play together or against each other. Um, this game is engaging. It's increasing your activity tolerance because you're not paying attention to the pain or the boredom of doing like a puzzle or cones and tennis balls or whatever. Like you're actually enjoying the intervention that you're doing while it's working on your strength and range of motion or eye tracking, hand-eye coordination, whatever it is. And there's a ton of things that you could work on 
as an OT using gaming interventions depending on how you set it up. So there's definitely that gaming as a therapeutic tool. There's also that, you know, gaming is already a meaningful occupation to you and you are losing the ability to do that, which is going to become a more and more common scenario given how popular gaming is in people's lives. Um, and if you're not going to use it as a therapy tool or in addition, like, the way that I see it is you could use gaming and make gaming harder to get people healthier and better again. So I could put these two buttons super far away and make you have to reach and work on your dynamic balance by pressing oh. and leaning back and forth left and right to play. So that's making gaming harder for therapeutic purposes. But there's also making gaming easier for access purposes. So when that same client is not using this gaming intervention in therapy, but they're just playing in their room or they wanna, they're, they're graduating, they're going home, um, how do I as an OT know how to create a gaming setup for them where they could just play and be a good gamer and a good player with their new adaptive setup? And I think there's just those two different areas that we as OT should really start to acclimate to, as you mentioned. That's amazing. I never thought about using the switch position to upgrade an activity. Mm -hmm. like make an activity harder. I was just thinking about that too because whenever we get assignments we're always told like oh give an upgrade a way to upgrade the activity give a way to downgrade and sometimes I find myself debating it because I'm not even sure how I would do that so that was just such an interesting point. Yeah there is um, an OT his name is Rob Ferguson he works out of the University of Michigan and he does all kinds of crazy stuff where he will mount a button like on somebody's back between their shoulder blades and have them work on like internal and external rotation uh, so wow. and he has quite a few videos and things like that too like he's you know super super great at uh, grading the activity while using VR gaming and, and switch buttons so I definitely check out uh, his social media stuff. I'm a thousand percent going to check that out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's so interesting. What a great way, mounting it in between the shoulder blades. That's so interesting. Wow. Um, speaking of OTs and the future of gaming, I did have some questions about eSports. So I'm just going to give a brief background of my understanding of eSports, um, just for anyone who's listening that might not know exactly what it is. So eSports is a growing field where multiplayer teams complete matches, much like traditional and professional sports like you might in the NFL or NBA. However, uh, many teams play matches on an international level because online play is accessible to worldwide competitors. So we talked about earlier that this means there are people using their hands for repetitive motions for hours upon hours a day. Um, and a lot of these teams already have coaches um, they have chefs, they have all kinds of people that work with them. Do you ever see a world, Caitlin, where maybe they also have a certified hand therapist on the team or they have someone that's an ergonomic specialist that's an OT that's on the team? And more of what I'm talking about specifically is the League of Legends players just because they play for long matches too. Those matches are pretty long. And um, it's also one of the more popular esports kind of happening right now. So I kind of wanted to get your opinion. Do you think that there is a spot for OTs in the future to be on these esports teams? Absolutely. And I really see it as no different than the kind of like consulting that OTs do now for a work environment. You know, like when an OT is hired to go into a business office and evaluate the height of all the computer screens and desks and things like that. Um, obviously, working in a business environment is the, the pretty norm and standard for us. So we've already made our way into that realm. But again, like eSports is just another example of technology and gaming playing a huge part in our lives to the point where it's literally an occupation for a lot of people and there's no reason that OTs should start making their way into that type of occupation too and ensuring that um, esports gamers are following proper ergonomics if they want to and also giving tips and uh, you know, different types of modalities and, and treatment sessions to them if they do have an injury for repetitive motion. And But from the get-go, like, making sure we prevent those types of injuries by using our OT knowledge and goodness to kind of uh, see if they're willing to adapt their setup or do things differently if it doesn't obviously, like, hinder their speed or their function to prevent the injuries in the first place. So I think it's definitely uh, just, like, 
an inherent thing that OTs are going to make their way into too, hopefully, and it's it's going to keep becoming more and more popular. I I'm really hoping so too, because I I know that you know if you're watching an NFL game, you might watch like a trainer or a physical therapist run onto the field and help an injured player. And in my head, I guess I kind of just imagine like an OT running onto the, <laughs> the stage and helping out somebody real quick. Or um, but also the fact that OTs are trained in mental health too, and all kinds of different aspects. So I feel like we could be valuable to these up and coming players that are dealing with a lot of mental health aspects. Um, and also dealing with a lot of hand injury and just ergonomic issues from sitting and playing or maybe changing the way they play. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> well, wow. I was just going to say, I feel like I've learned so much during this past hour, I feel like, because I didn't know a lot about gaming, so when we were doing some researching, Becky was explaining some things, but even your point about playing Candy Crush, like a lot of people wouldn't even think that's gaming, but it really is, and that's so interesting. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, gaming is just way more than what we thought it, I even thought it was at the beginning of this podcast because I kind of forgot that Bejeweled was a thing or Candy Crush is a thing on your phone. And I know so many people that play those games. And I think it's, it's just so awesome, Caitlin, that you took the time out of your day to speak with us and talk to us and really educate us about not only your path into occupational therapy, but the different ways that um, gaming enters our lives that can improve our lives and how you can change it to better people's um, way of engaging virtually, socially. Uh, this is just amazing. We're so happy you came to talk to us. Thank you guys so much. I really, really appreciate uh, you inviting me and having the, the ability to talk about it. I think it's super important. So yeah, thank, thank you all for having this podcast <laughs> where you give OTs the opportunity uh, to kind of, you know, like help talk to a, a wider array of students and get this information out there. Um, really, really awesome. Well, you know, I just think this is great, and uh, we're so happy that you came to talk to us, and um, it really was so educational. I think I'm going to be thinking about a lot of this for the next several hours. So am I, yeah. <laughs> Even though I should be taking a quiz, but I'll get around to it. <laughs> so, um, Caitlin, we just want to plug Warfighter Engaged. We are coming up on the holiday season for many people, which means people will be uh, spending money buying gifts. So would you like to just plug a little bit about Warfighter Engaged, how people guys can support you, either through buying um, rigs or donations, anything like that? Yeah. Uh, so like I mentioned a little bit earlier, and like y'all mentioned, uh, we are a nonprofit 501c3 organization. Um, and the best way to support us, so there's a couple of different ways. Obviously, donations are always welcome. Um, our website is www.warfighterengaged.org. Um, we also have, we're on Twitter and uh, Facebook as well. But also, um, a big way to support us and our mission for ensuring more gamers with disabilities can game is if you do know anybody, like a colleague or a friend or a parent or whatever, uh, where they think that they might be inter interested in gaming but don't know really where to start or how to do it, like please point them in our direction because we, we would love to chat with them and, and see what we could do to help, if anything. Um, and yeah, I think just spreading the word of gaming and the fact that it's it's an option now for a lot of people with disabilities and there's no need to feel excluded anymore. Um, that would be super helpful for us. And we can definitely do that. So again, you can go to uh, warfighterengage.org to find out more. Um, and then I know, Caitlin, that you are on Twitter uh, if people want to follow you specifically. Yeah, my Twitter handle is Jones underscore. Caitlin Jones without the underscore was taken. So mine is Caitlin Jones <laughs> underscore. <laughs> I love it. I feel your pain. Yeah. As someone with the last name Smith, uh, my name is always taken. Yep. So I understand. Um, and then I just want to plug the Xbox Adaptive Gaming Controller, which is available at the Microsoft's website. It's only $99.99, um, which is pretty comparable to some other specialized controllers um, and some just wireless controllers for other systems. So it's a pretty decent deal. 
And um, I just want to thank everybody again. This is Becky. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, we, me and Deanna, I don't want to speak for Deanna, but we had so much fun creating these episodes for you, finding topics, uh, and just the fact that somebody wants to listen to us is so cool. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, Caitlin, for speaking with us today. And just thank you, everyone, for listening. Becky and I have had a lot of fun coming up with questions and researching, and it's also helped us become more aware of certain um, fields in occupational therapy that we weren't even aware of, even though we're in school for it now, which has been great, especially today. I feel like we've learned so much. So it's been amazing. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you. Hopefully we'll see you guys all again soon. Caitlin, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney, and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!